Hello, everyone. This is Jackson Nikolai. You're about to jump into the conversation, but before we begin, I wanted to take just a minute at the beginning and give a bit of a content warning for this episode. Normally, we do these in the content of the episode themselves, but we were so excited to get into the conversation that we jumped right by it this time. But just a heads up that the play we're discussing today has uh, some content in it that could be troubling. Specifically, this play contains themes of violence and also themes of sexual assault as well. So, if that doesn't sound like the play you want to hear talked about today, that's totally okay. Wanted to give you the chance to go ahead and listen to something else if that's the way that today is lining up for you. If not, feel free to jump into the rest of the conversation that will begin in just a short moment. Welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob. And I'm Jackson. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> it is good to be chatting with all of you again. We are glad to be here early in season 11 of this podcast. We've still got an acre of great scripts to discuss <laughs> ahead of us, including uh, just a little reveal behind the curtain. We have, prior to this recording date, recorded a sort of special special no script experience that will be one of the episodes for later in the season. So we're jazzed about that, even though for you all, it's several weeks away, but we are coming off of doing that recording together, this special experience. I don't want to say too much more than that yet, but no, coming <laughs> in the season is something really fun. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep it hidden behind the curtain a little bit longer. But yeah, we're just we're constantly trying new stuff out. This show is great for that. We love having these conversations. We love having ideas about how to advance the conversations further and things like that. So thank you all for continuing to join us and um, uh, tune into the podcast and get to enjoy, you know, talking about these scripts. These, these scripts that we uh, have lined up for the season are super exciting and we're glad to get the chance to continue to talk about them. Yeah. We will have ahead of us a lot of the things that you know and love from No Script. I'm sure we've said this in our first episode of the season as well, but this season is going to have a special guest and a themed month and a huge variety of kinds and types and voices of plays and playwrights. So it's going to be a good season. And we're starting off with a series of really interesting scripts. Of course, last week we discussed another Lynn Nottage play, a continuance of an old tradition from the life of no script. And today we are discussing another play by Susan Laurie Parks, who uh, now listen. So I'm in I'm in graduate school right now and I write a lot of academic papers and they got all these rules about what this kind of stuff you can and can't say in academic writing. So I put in an essay that Susan Laurie Parks was probably America's best living dramatist. Hey. Now, there's a lot of great folks out there, but that's what I put in the paper. And of course, they made me cut it for publication. So that was just <laughs> like I couldn't couldn't just toss that in there willy nilly, I right. guess. But that is how I feel. I, I, I do feel that probably of the living playwrights, Susan American playwrights, Susan Laurie Parks is the best or if she's not the best, she is one of the best without question. 
Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal playwright. Excited to get to talk about one of her plays again. We've talked about Susan Laurie Parks on the show before. I believe we've done uh, Top Dog Underdog, and uh, I believe we've done one or two other others of her as well. I should have like double checked before we got rolling today. Boy, um, we've just we've talked about hundreds of scripts. You just can't keep track of them. True. <laughs> I know for sure that there's been uh, multiple more of Parks's uh, Susan Laurie Parks's plays on the podcast, though. So excited to get the chance to talk about it again, and excited to talk about this one in particular in In the Blood being uh, the script that we are talking about today, uh, which is part of the kind of series of plays around the red letter plays. Yes, so this is published and is is sometimes, although my sense is not that it's always or even often this way, in part because In the Blood is a full-length play. So what I'm about to describe is a little strange to me that how you could sort of I mean, I've heard of it done, but it, it's a it's a hard evening to make work. But it is sometimes in the blood performed with the other play in the red letter plays, a play called and you know for those of you out there who don't love it when we swear, this is going to have some swearing in it. The title of this next play is Fucking A, and so those two plays are the red letter plays, and and they're performed together. Uh, and, and they do have a very interesting conversation that they have between them. One of them is that the protagonist in each play is named Hester. Hester is a—I don't know that we necessarily—in fact, I, I'm almost sure that they're not even meant to be the same character— but there certainly is that something there in the conversation between these two Hesters. And of course, if you're into literature, the red letter plays, I guess you either think we're talking about G- the words of Jesus or we're talking about the Scarlet Letter, <laughs> uh, which is the novel on which both of those plays, the one from today and then the other play in the red letter plays, are built. We'll talk about that more in the context section, but two plays from the Scarlet Letter or inspired by the Scarlet Letter. Yeah, yeah, lots of lots of fun stories that you might you might get to in the context eventually, Jacob. But lots of fun stories around how uh, Susan Lloyd Parks came up with these plays, very uh, kind of synchronously, kind of at once, uh, at, uh, over over quite a quite a bit of time, kind of bringing them together. But still, the the two plays kind of are speaking to each other in some ways. But today we're focusing on the one um, and excited for the conversation. It's a very evocative play, and it's a play that uh, tells a really important story um, uh, and kind of welcomes us into another another facet of folks's life and uh gives voice to a a a pretty uh a pretty striking character especially in hester and her family yeah i think this this should be a really fascinating conversation just because any discussion about a susan laurie parks play is bound to be fascinating because the plays themselves are so unusual. I mean, she's had to publish what more or less, I mean, it's not, I don't think this is quite what she calls it, but it's more or less her own manual of style because her language, the architecture of the page of a script in the writing of Susan Laurie Parks is so uniquely her and the structure of the story and the way in which choreo poems and the way in which uh, image heavy writing and the way in which monologues are used across her work lend themselves to fascinating discussions because the plays are so uniquely Susan Laurie Parks. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I love, I love uh, anytime, anytime a script gets to start with like kind of directions uh, for like how how to read the script. I always start geeking out. Um, and Susan Lori Parks always includes these like this is what I mean when when I have these these uh, particular markings and and uh, and parentheses and all that business to kind of like evoke the, the 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 tonality of the piece. So yeah, lots of exciting stuff to talk about. And excited to get to jump further into the conversation. However, before we do, want to take a second as we always do at the start of our show to thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash no script podcast for being patrons of the show thank you all so much no script is 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 a labor of love for us and and we love getting to have these conversations and the patrons at uh, patreon.com slash no script podcast make that all possible because alas it is not a free endeavor to run a podcast lots of costs associated with anything these days so uh if you're looking for a way to help out the show and also just to kind of jump into the community of no script a little bit more patreon.com slash no script podcast is a great way to do that number of different tiers over there the lowest one being just one dollar twelve dollars over the course of a year and uh various other tiers over there that you can check out but the biggest things is like getting to have some kind of uh, more connected conversations and things like that and also knowledge of the scripts that we're doing coming up we post them early over on Patreon so if you're a longtime listener or if you're just tuning in for uh, this season for the first time or whatever and you're wanting to look for a way to be a part of the NoScript community head on over to patreon.com slash NoScript podcast and we will see you over there and now back to the script Alrighty, All righty, here we go. Yep, so we are diving in. If you are new to the podcast, we do these context and synopsis sections uh, to sort of set up the framework of our conversation. They are not at all uh, robust, um, comprehensive discussions. Uh, the context does not cover the whole life of the play or the playwright, and the synopsis is not designed to reveal plot point by plot point what happens over the course of a full-length play. We just like everybody to have a sort of similar starting place for the conversation. Um, Susan Laurie Parks, because we've done several Susan Laurie Parks plays on the podcast so far, we won't be doing a full context on her um, basically if you don't know susan lori parks if this is a new playwright i'm introducing to you just like make the next 10 plays you read susan lori parks plays i mean that she is as influential yeah. on what drama is in america on the voice of drama as anyone is and she has a resume to prove it in terms of productions and awards i think that's all i need to say look her up if you don't know her she is incredible her, her style speaks to a style of theater that is just so powerful to me. Um, and so I continue to, not that she needs me to champion her, but I continue to do it whenever I get the chance, including in essays where the lines about how great she is get cut by the editor. But I, tr I did try. If you're out there, Susan Lane Parks, <laughs> I did try. I did include it in the essay, and I sent it, and the editor cut it. So I'm sorry. I tried my best. In the Blood, as we've said, and the next play in this cycle of plays, uh, I'll just start to say effing A now. Uh, again, they're both based on The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And that's not surprising to me. I don't think it's surprising to anybody that knows Susan Laurie Parks. She is what you would describe what is kind of 
in the educational and academic circles described as a postmodern dramatist. If you have in your theater history courses or your dramatic lit courses a section on postmodern drama, I'd be willing to bet money that you and your class are reading a Susan Laurie Parks play as the example play in that section of your course. And one of the characteristics of postmodern anything, um, but I speak best to drama, is the way in which it alludes to other things, the way in which it is intertextual, the way in which it messes with grand narratives. That's part of what postmodernism does. And so you get a play like Top Dog Underdog, which of course is, you know, one of the plays of America, won her the Pulitzer Prize, and that is uh, has so much to do with the, the Abraham Lincoln narrative in American history. It has to do with the Cain and Abel narrative that drives so much of literature and drama. And so for this play and the other play to be based on a major novel, which has its roots and tendrils throughout literature, storytelling, media, movies, TV. I mean, The Scarlet Letter has far-reaching impact in our culture. And so Susan Lord Parks, being who she is, says, I'm going to do something with that. This first play, as I understand, was originally going to be called Effing A, and she ended up calling it something else and naming the next play that. I'm not totally sure why, but that's how the story goes. And this play is, I would say, very loosely based on The Scarlet Letter, in the sense that it is about a uh, female-identifying protagonist who is socially outcast for the amount of sex that she's had and the amount of people that she's had it with. In this play, that is manifested in um, her children. Jackson will talk about the synopsis, of course, but the other play, it is manifested in the children that she doesn't have, which is why it is uh, the plays are very interesting in conversation with each other. In the Blood premiered in 1999 at the Joseph Pat Public Theater. Um, in 2000, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. This was before she won the Pulitzer Prize for Top Dog Underdog. Um, there are a number of other productions of this play, a lot at colleges. Susan Laurie Parks has a robust college production history across all her plays, or at least a lot of them. This play is no exception. But some professional productions, places like the Edison Theater in Los Angeles, and then uh, you may know, if you know of one, of a more recent revival, a 2017 revival at the Signature Theater Company that you can find a lot of stuff out there on. Um, interestingly, in that revival, uh, Jocelyn Bio played the welfare lady. Jocelyn is a playwright who we've talked about on the podcast who is also a really successful working actor. And so she pops up in a lot of these productions that we talk about, even as we also talk about the plays that she's writing. Um, there are so many great reviews of this play, uh, articles on this play. If, if what we talk about today is interesting to you, uh, check some of those out. There's, she, Susan Laurie Parks is written about a lot because of the type of theater that she represents. And so that's a great playwright to start if you're interested reading what people are writing about about her because there's so much there. Again, that's just a brief overview of the life of the play. Obviously, there's a lot more out there, but gives us at least a starting place, um, a 1999 world premiere. So this play is almost 25 years old.
Yeah, yeah, it's been hanging out for a while. Um, uh, yeah, and 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 yeah, it's just kind of cool. The the, the I, I watched just a little bit of some of Susan Laurie Parks talking about how she kind of wrote these plays and the the journey of uh, kind of knowing that one she wanted to write a, a Scarlet Letter esque play or, or, or a play inspired by the Scarlet Letter, kind of working on what she thought was effing a uh, for for a while, and then. Um, eventually having to edit all the way back and discovering in the blood as a part of that editing back process. Um, and so, so yeah, super, super fun to get to jump into the conversation on that today. Um, I'm just going to synopsize it real quick for us. Um, again, as Jacob already said, uh, the kind of finer plot points tend to come out in our conversation, but I'll give you the broad sweep of the play as we, uh, begin to jump into, uh, our conversation around it. Uh, this play centers on the uh, main character of Hester and her family. Now, her family, uh, as Jacob already mentioned, uh, is uh, made up of her five children, and each of these five children all have different fathers who, um, some of them make appearances in the show um, and uh, kind of rotate through, but at least as the family operates, they are not uh, present as fathers in their lives. Um these are, so Hester, her oldest uh, son is Jabber. Um, and then uh, next up we have, uh, I believe, Bully, and then Trouble, and then Beauty, and then Baby. Um, and so you have all five of them. Interestingly, and we'll talk about this for sure when we get to the conversation, these are all played by adults. And then all of them are actually end up being played by people connected to the story of their birth, sometimes by fathers, sometimes by people connected to the fathers. And, and so, so yeah, it's a very interesting casting for this show as well in, in these characters. The opening scene of the play is a prologue. Um, it's uh, kind of... Uh, a very uh, striking piece of the kind of voices that surround Hester. The whole cast kind of shows up and uh, kind of uh, uh, hurls these uh, these judgments against her for uh, for where she's at in life. Kind of this over and over this this theme of like you don't know how to read, you don't know how to write, you don't have a job. You have one thing that you know how to do, and that is have these babies over and over again. So you have the kind of censure and the judgment of the community. But then we kind of meet the family. Um, that is kind of living uh, on the the scene one is titled under the bridge and we kind of join them in the in their home under the bridge and we get to know this family and how they operate a little bit um it's it's normally around bedtime because again all, a lot of these characters are double cast and so um uh, eventually we meet amiga gringa who comes on and she's kind of uh, a sort of a fence slash friend to Hester slash someone who takes advantage of Hester quite frequently. Um, and uh, so she comes back, she's trying to get money uh, that, or Hester is trying to get money that she uh, uh, invested basically through Amiga Gringa, who uh, through a watch. So she was supposed to go and sell it. And so she comes back and says, basically you only get five bucks for selling the watch. Um, so, so right away, you kind of have this scene of, of some uh, tension. We get the sense that Hester is quite down on her luck, and she's trying to figure out some way to come out from under this situation. Amigo Gringa brings up the, uh, the, the possibility of, trying, of, of uh, Hester trying to find the fathers and trying to get some sort of uh, payment and, and, and life um, uh, in, in terms of money from them. Um, and uh, Hester is somewhat... Uh, talks about being somewhat resistant to that. She uh, has uh, tried before to find some of these uh, men before, um, but uh, can't really find them. The most recent one is the father of Baby, who is just a, a little one, a couple years old. Um, 
And that kind of brings us uh, into the uh, second scene. The second scene is uh, uh, she has printed out a picture of baby and she's going to bring it to the, uh, the father that she knows where the location is. However, she's interrupted in that effort by meeting the doctor on the street. Um, the doctor has the street practice. Um, uh, he's played by the same actor who plays Trouble. Um, and uh, he kind of uh, does a quick examination, a somewhat invasive examination, and we start to kind of kind of wonder about this doctor's practice a little bit. Um, and uh, by the end of the scene, we get the, well, first of all, he recommends, amongst other things, he uh, kind of recommends some treatment, but also he recommends, tells her that he has recommended to her, like, kind of social work agency that she get uh, a hysterectomy, a pretty, a pretty uh, decisive procedure. Um and so uh, she kind of leaves that interaction and we get the first of these confessions that happen throughout the play from the doctor. The confessions are these scenes where we find out a little bit more about all the connections of these people. And it turns out doctor is likely the father of one of the children, likely trouble. Um, uh, given the symmetry of at least the, the, the rest of the play. Um, he kind of tells a story of a time when, uh, he, he, he and her shared an evening together, um, and, uh, kind of recounts that story before eventually, um, kind of going off stage. He kind of confesses that moment and, and, uh, uh, and some of his kind of remaining feelings around that. Next up, we have the scene entitled The Reverend on the Soapbox. We meet another father. This is the father of Baby. He is uh, a preacher, um, kind of a preacher on the corner sort of preacher, um, and kind of in the work of, of bringing in some money to try to build a church. Um, and he uh, has has the scene where he's kind of delivering this sermon, and, and uh, eventually Hester walks up to him and... He doesn't recognize her. She holds up the the picture of baby and is kind of kind of tells the story as if she is not connected to him of how the father has doesn't know about this baby yet, etc. And uh, the reverend kind of paints himself into a corner a little bit by saying, "Well, surely you should you should reach out to him." And then this this father should uh, support this child. And eventually, she kind of reveals her face. He realizes who she is, and immediately his mood changes, and he's very quickly like, I will t talk to my lawyer to give you money and we'll work something out. Don't tell welfare about it, essentially, because they'll garnish all my wages to pay you. I will pay you a large sum of money uh, and in the, in, in, in the fullness of time, basically I'll, I'll hold a collection. He keeps making these promises and eventually just tries to get her to leave. Um, and, uh, says that he will pay her eventually, which she decides to believe him on in this particular scene. Um, Next scene is uh, scene four with the, with the welfare. Uh, we have a scene with kind of her welfare counselor, Hester's welfare counselor. She comes in right away. The power dynamic is really interesting and weird. Uh, she shows up and right uh, Hester goes right into like, or, or she prompts Hester to like come over and start taking care of her hair um, and, and kind of uh, cleaning her up a little bit. And you have this scene where she's trying to tell Hester that she needs to kind of get more work and uh, stick with the work that they find for her. Otherwise they're having trouble like, like uh, keeping her in a secure place. She talks about the, the doctor and the doctor's recommendation. Um, the scene continues back and forth. The welfare lady uh, or the welfare, I guess is her, her official title. Um, gives her work to do. Um, it's very, very kind of a small amount of work and very menial sort of work. She's just, she's just going to like try to sew 
um, this pattern, this dress. Um, but she leaves this fabric with her, and right before she leaves, she has a confession and confesses to a kind of menage a trois between her and her husband and Hester, um, and uh, and and uh, something long ago. And uh, we we get the sense again with the pairing of the of the uh, actors that uh, Bully's father is likely the welfare's husband in some way. So you have another connection point there. Um, on we go into the small change in sandwiches. Amiga Gringa makes a reappearance as uh, as uh, Hester is trying to sew this fabric into something. Um, uh, all the while, of course, a kind of recurrent theme is Hester trying to supply food to her children in some way and giving food to her children um, uh, instead of eating herself. Um, this is this scene is called Small Change in Sandwiches. There's a pretty pivotal sandwich that Hester is trying to save to either eat for herself or um, give to her children. And Amiga Gringa shows up and is is like, <laughs> first of all, sees the sandwich and starts starts like wanting to take bites out of it and hand it around. And also sees the dress and is like, I could sell that fabric for a hundred dollars and you have a hundred dollars today. Um, and so she kind of like goes down this road of temptation for for Hester to try to see if she can sell the fabric quicker than she can get the little bit of money that she'd make from actually making it into a dress. That scene ends with uh, Amigo Gringa kind of having her own confession of, of her connection to Hester and how for a while they kind of ran these sort of sexual videos that they were making and um, tried to make money off of that. Um, and things got out of hand one night, and some of the men who came to these sort of shows, again, one of them uh, uh, took advantage of Hester and is likely um, the, the father of beauty in some way. So again, you have these kind of recurring themes of, of these confessions of all these people in Hester's life who have kind of led her into these sorts of situations. Um, uh, we got the Reverend on the Rock next, uh, which is uh, Hester Returns trying to see if, if the Reverend has taken any sort of collection or is taking this seriously at all. Um, uh, he kind of continues to say that like his flock isn't you know ready for me to be honest about this sort of things. Um, and so uh, he keeps kind of talking about that. Um, eventually this scene ends with him kind of propositioning her again, which she ag kind of agrees to do in some way, decides to do. Um, and, uh, then that leads to his confession as well. His story of how he, uh, and her had, uh, a night together not too long ago. Um, we then hit, uh, my song in the street. We kind of have, uh, which is, uh, scene seven. Uh, this is a scene where, uh, you have the sort of, um, uh, this this sort of recurring theme beginning of Hester talking about this eclipse that's happening and this hand that is weighing down on her, this sort of metaphor of the weight of the world um, kind of shadowing over her. Uh, in this scene, uh, the doctor comes back in, says he's scheduled the hysterectomy and that she kind of has to go through with it um, in some way. And then Chili, the father of Jabber, shows up, the, the first man in her in her story, um, shows up and w says that he wants to marry her again, has a ring that he says, I, if I couldn't find you, I was going to give it to someone else. He got like a flexible ring so that he could maybe give it to someone else. Um, and so he shows up in her life and, uh, says that he wants to kind of bring them all together. And then, uh, the rest of her children come running on stage and immediately his mood shifts, uh, kind of the, he can, he's, he says that, oh, I kind of had this idea that it was just you and Jabber out here. And I guess this isn't going to work out after all. Um, which prompts, uh, again, a, a turn in the next scene to, uh, the Reverend who, uh, holds this col collection, uh, for, 
for ostensibly for uh, Hester. Um, and but when she checks in with him, he says, I'm sorry, they weren't very generous. I have barely anything for you. Um, and uh, there's nothing for you here, essentially. And so she she uh, this leads to a confrontation between them. She says, why don't you like me? He says, get out of here. I'm not going to no one will believe you. I'm not going to help you get out of here. Leave. And so she does. She goes uh, back home. She's uh, confronted by a Jabber, who uh, uh, there's a, a focal image at the beginning of the play that comes quite relevant now. There's this graffiti on the wall that says slut on the wall. Um, and uh, Jabber is reluctant to read it out loud, even though he knows it. And in this last scene, he kind of overhears some of what the Reverend says and uh, confesses that he knew what was on the wall. And he starts to kind of just repeat that line over and over to his mom, which leads to a pretty violent end of uh, Hester uh, has this sort of baton that was stolen throughout the early on in the play that she has kind of gotten a hold of. And she ends up kind of pulling it out. And in the moment of kind of all of this pressure, this ongoing kind of hand of the hand of weight over her and this sort of vitriolic tirade by Jabber being thrown at her beats him to death with the baton. Um, which, uh, a quite, quite shocking scene towards the end of the play. And that sort of culminates in this prison scene, which again, all the characters are doing this chant from the beginning of the play around her, um, chanting uh, about the judgment of the people around her and and the world as she kind of deals with the gravity of of having uh, just killed her oldest son um, in a truly truly tragic sort of fashion um, and over and over she repeats the kind of last lines of the play this big hand is coming down on me over and over the sort of weight of the pressure that is around her there you go that's my that's my run through the the scenes of this play. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot happens and, and a lot has happened to Hester in the course of her life. And the, the this sort of series of, of people who have taken advantage of her and left her in these, you know, caring for these children and then abandoned by the fathers and discarded is, is part of it. There's a, a really striking... Um, moment in the middle of the play when Hester and Welfare are talking. And Hester says, you know, basically that the, the world doesn't treat women well. That's not an exact quote. It's actually uh, written much starker than that. And and Welfare, you know, says, oh, that's not really true. Buck up, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's a great quote by Ben Brantley, who, of course, is, is a reviewer for The New York Times, a very famous one. And he when he reviewed the 2017 Signature Theater production, he made the connection between Hester and these ancient Greek queens that people like Euripides were writing. Um, and this idea that in these sort of tragic female figures – they're, the the world always dooms them. They're sort of doomed from the beginning of the play, and that that is part of what Susan Laurie Parks is doing as well. Is not just playing with the Scarlet Letter, but playing with this like uh, this American, or not even American, I suppose, because it's all the way from ancient Greece. This sort of Western figure of the doomed, tragic female protagonist, um, and commenting and criticizing on it, and. And he makes that connection between Hester. Other people have made the connection between Hester and uh, Willie Loman. Uh, that that there is just a, a the the world is not set up for these people anymore for very different reasons, of course. 
um, but that the, we we watch a story in which the this protagonist throws everything they can at building a life for themselves and at the end simply cannot. Yeah, just over and over, you really feel the this sort of uh, desperate push of Hester to find something, to find some door in the wall uh, of her life over and over that she tries to tries to find some way through um, and just continuously has these has these either circumstances that arise or or just these people in her life who know that they can take advantage of her in some way. And so they do. And it's just uh, the, the the process of this play uh, or the experience, I guess, of this play kind of watching Hester keep trying, keep pushing on things that even she, like she attests to not wanting to have to do. She doesn't want to have to like basically turn Chili into welfare. She doesn't, uh, she, she, it's not enjoyable for her to have to go and like, just like tooth and nail, try to get the Reverend to have any sort of compassion. Um, uh, but, but over and over you see her doing what she needs to, to try to provide for her family. Um, and just over and over get stymied by either the system or just the the kind of the the will of these people who uh, w decide to take advantage of her. I think it's interesting, Jackson, in your synopsis that you made a connection, which I think is is I also agree is in the play, but is not there uh, as obviously perhaps as all that, which is that um because the children are all double cast with another person from this world, um, the connection that you made was that the children are the children of the person they are double cast with or the basically the story that they are double cast with in these confessions. We know that's true for a couple of characters, and I think that's how this clue building starts. Chili and Jabber are double cast together. And we know, at least according to the stories that Hester tells, that Jabber is Chili's child. Right. And so that sort of sets us up right away. And then the Reverend's child is Baby. And that, again, is just an established part of the world. And Reverend is double cast with Baby. But then you get these other three kids. Uh, welfare double cast with bully and doctor double cast with trouble and amiga gringa uh, double cast with beauty and in those cases the connection is not quite as is not made quite as clear yeah um but i i think that is a reasonable presumption to make or at least uh is an interesting conclusion now um the what is in each of these confession stories is a very clear um even to the point of being sort of uncomfortable at some points, but a very clear indication that the sex that they had would have been, could have resulted in conception. Uh, I just leave the rest of like what's possible out there to your own brains to think about, but they are very clear in each case <laughs> that the sex or in, in one case, the rape that is, uh, that, that happens, it, it could have resulted in conception. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think so. So, yeah, that uh, it is it is uh, it, it's an inference, I think, to to kind of land on each of these children are paired with the person respond or partially responsible for their being in the world um, and taking advantage of Hester uh, in those in those ways. But also the um, uh, but 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 there I, th I agree that there's kind of this uh, 
yeah, there's there's these multiple scenes where it's like, yeah, that that make, just makes sense. Like <laughs> that's just, I mean, it's good symmetry, <laughs> and it's kind of a fun like mystery to unravel. Now, I don't know exactly how I would. It, it's interesting to think about how I would feel sitting in the theater space. I think you would you would know that these characters are the same, and you would kind of like you know make that inference just visually on the on the page. It's right there for me to kind of kind of wonder about, but. Um, but it is such an interesting dynamic to have these adults, something that I didn't really cover in the synopsis a ton, is these kind of big scenes where the whole family is there, um, where, where all the children are running around, they're getting ready for bed, and like... You know, these are these are full adults. I've definitely seen versions of the production of this play where I assume it's the doctor, but he's kind of a you know a graying older gentleman playing, um, uh, you know one one of these younger kids running around complaining about their teeth brushing or whatever. Um, and so so yeah, there is this sort of like jarring something to figure out, this like sort of mystery around these uh, adults playing kids. Um, and, and, uh, kind of wondering around the connection with, with those who are kind of doing these confessions. Well, why do you think that that is what, other than just the challenge of casting kids, maybe, I, I mean, those of you out there that don't do a lot of casting, unless, unless the, sh the expectation of the show is that the, it is being performed by children, it's often very hard to cast children because theater due to its live nature requires really consistent performances night after night. And the younger you get, the harder it is to be consistent. So you often see for that reason, uh, adults cast as children in, in, in stage productions, especially those that are going to have a significant financial backing. Obviously I know that there are lots of children that get cast on stage, but I'm just saying <laughs> that other than that consideration of like, I don't, I don't want to add five people to the cast. I don't want to add five children to the cast. Like what, what do you think that Susan Laurie Parks is doing metaphorically or image on the image level? with casting the or having these full adults as you say play games of freeze tag um and and things like that yeah yeah well, so, some of it is what we've already talked about but i won't including I i'm sorry to interrupt you but including a baby like i just want yeah. to be clear when we say baby is one of the names of the kids newborn baby right a right very young baby at the start of the play yeah <laughs> yep that has to be like cajoled into sleep um and is is and later on shows up as the reverend which is some delightful sort of uh symmetry there um uh but uh but yeah so so definitely definitely that i think the kind of welcoming into that sort of like wondering around connection we've already kind of talked about that a little bit some of it is just the juxtaposition which is a just a good tool in terms of engaging the sort of themes that are there i think it's also though just a little bit alienation as well a little bit Brechtian um this kind of like I want you to engage the like the the, the core themes of this family um without the kind of heartstring emotion of seeing just children on stage I think especially of the final scene with Jabber um there would just be there would there would just be it would it would be uh it would be an extra step I guess what alienation hopes to do is like try to move your emotions out of the equation and I don't think that's ultimately what Susan Laurie Parks is trying to do there's a lot of emotion in this play for sure and it and it definitely is engageable in that way but the scene with Jabber would be very different <laughs> if on stage you know the, this this child is is kind of beaten to death by a policeman's baton that his mother is using it's a very different scene um you can kind of approach 
the 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 kind of uh, pity and fear, the catharsis of of uh, Hester in that last scene, talking about the heaviness of the weight of the hand on her that kind of has led her to this moment a little bit easier with the alienation of Jabber being an adult. And also, Jabber being the same person who played Chili, who honestly, by the end of the scene, we wouldn't mind seeing get beat up just a little bit. Um... <laughs> So, so there's, um, I think that aspect is there too of, of this sort of like, we'll just like, we'll, we'll move, we'll move these, uh, children into, uh, uh, a visual that allows you to engage the theme a little bit more or the, the, the underlying moral, morals, too strong a word, the underlying thing of what's happening to these people without the emotional level of having to watch, you know, young children, (laughs) uh, going through that experience as well. And I and I think too that there is a level of um, what Susan Laurie Parks is saying about what we pass down through our children. I mean, of course, the play is called In the Blood, and it's that line comes from very early in the first choreo poem. Um, that's the kind of prologue scene of the play. The line is bad news is in her blood or something to that effect, which is uh, uh, very poignant and very sad. But there's also, you know, children are not just one person's uh, in terms of their DNA. And so the the, the legacy of these people who, who conceived these children alongside Hester, uh, they are still around. Now, what's fascinating to me is that they're not just straight up all five cast as the fathers yeah or as the the sperm donors none of them are really great fathers so maybe i'll just call them the sperm donors <laughs> sure. but they're, they're not and and that i mean to some degree it's like well that would just mean that the the play is five men and and one female identifying actor and and susan laurie parks maybe is not interested in that sort of uh division of roles but i also think that it speaks to for Hester, what the the people in her life that are the impetus for this happening to her are there's something about the sort of memory that is held in each of the children hmm. for Jabber to be played by his father Chili well Chili and 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 Hester had a relationship it's i mean if you believe Chili's telling of it it was even this sort of sweet young romance where they were both supposedly each other's you know they were both virgins when they first slept together very you know kind of classically teenage love story story um and and then for the reverend there is a continuing relationship between him and her and for the doctor there is a continuing relationship between him and her but for uh, the amiga gringa and for welfare there is no continuing relationship with the father and no even past relationship with the father really other than the the brief sexual one these are strangers to her and so what what memory what thing what what has held on inside each of these humans now in in Hester's life is you know, I, I guess what i'm saying is that maybe Susan Laurie Parks is saying something more than just like well, these kids look like their dads because they're half their DNA. The people in their life that caused this to happen to her, that that they are the people that play the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I actually reached any kind of conclusion there, but something is swirling. 
Yeah, like so. So certainly, there's the the kind of very accessible metaphor uh, for for the couple kids around in the blood of like it's literally in the blood, but also the like the like kind of more. Uh, amorphous metaphor around like you there there are effects that you have even if you're not like the 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 choices that you make matter for people i guess is 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 connected into that and the ongoing effect of amiga gringa and the welfare on hester's life and her kids um is kind of in the water or in the blood or in kind of like fully immersing this family still even even with them not even being associated um, d- directly with with the yeah the sperm donor sort of thing. Um, so the so yeah that, I think that <laughs> although to, to borrow your your term, um, but yeah I think that's the I think that's the that 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 certainly is being nodded to. I like that a lot of this sort of like continuing effect that kind of blood relationship uh, that all these people have with Hester and her family. I want to make a, another connection between what this play reminded me of, and it may be a, a sort of obscure one for folks out there, but it was so strong, uh, strongly present in my mind, in part perhaps because I think two years ago my university produced this show that I'm about to talk about, and so yeah, I have a sort of recent encounter with it. Um, I don't know if folks out there have heard of the play Machinal by Sophie Treadwell, which is uh, kind of a contemporary of Trifles by Susan Glassbell. It's a great play if you haven't. It's fantastic. I'm sure we'll do it here on No Script at some point. It's so interesting in the way that it's written and constructed. But it is also a series of vignettes uh, where a young woman, and that's just the name of the character in the play, is the young woman, encounters all these sort of different facets of life um, and the way in which in that place she's sort of trapped into a, a bad marriage, uh, has an opportunity for escape that doesn't pan out. At the end of the play, she ends up murdering her husband and then is uh, sent to prison. There's a very robust trial and the final play is her in prison about to be executed. Um, and, and I, I don't, I, first of all, I don't want to pretend that I'm the first person to make this connection. Although as far as I can tell, it was an original thought if, for, at least in my, you know, in my experience of the play, but this play feels like it is so strongly related to Machinal that it almost has to be intentional, um, to the point where in Machinal in the final prison scene, there are also these sort of two commentators that are riffing back and forth on her life in prison now. And, um, that, 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 that happens in, in the blood as well with the doctor and welfare sort of standing around and commenting on her. But this play feels like a, 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 a sort of mock and all in which the person who the, the kind of world trapping events that happened in mock and all happened to does not happen to be a, a privileged person at all. And that would also be true of folks that compare this play to Death of a Salesman. I mean, for all of the tragic, heartbreaking events of Death of a Salesman, Willie Loman and his family are, you know, have a, a huge level of privilege that someone like Hester doesn't have. And so part of me wonders if some of what Susan Laurie Parks is doing is saying, well, all of these stories that are the kind of tragic the world has no place for you stories that make up American narratives. They all tend to be about people who, you know what? The world actually does have a place for. I know it's a very sad story, but you know, their life isn't all that bad. (laughs) And what about people for whom America truly does not have a place 
for whom bad news is in the blood, who live under a bridge? What if these kinds of things happen to them? Yeah, 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 yeah. That that's sort of like re let's let's reset the uh given circumstances. Um and and uh yeah, engage 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 differently, engage this story really differently. And the I, I don't know, I feel like yeah, I mean I definitely see the resonance with Willie Loman, but I don't maybe maybe it's just like some of the some of the Brechtianness and also some of the mother child stuff, but like Mother Courage also stands out to me as like a connection point. Yeah, this play. I, I thought that too. Yes. Yeah, of like yeah, this 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 mother who's conti- continuously trying to figure something out and just one by one can't figure figure it out. We don't lose as many of the kids as we do in Mother Courage, but we do lose we do lose one of them. Um and and yeah, it's so so yeah, that kind of like really really impactful story of someone trying to find some way not even to like climb up the it's not even like you know capitalism success story it's just like i want to feed my kids <laughs> i want to i want to find some way yeah. to to get the to get them kind of consistently taken care of and the lengths to which she tries to go and still getting shut down all the time yeah it's there's a great i mean the, the reverend character in this play is just so fascinating and has i think a really um, engaging and highly critical monologue about the way in which uh, folks like to keep the poverty that they spend their money to alleviate. This is not going to be a good sentence, and I'll rephrase it at the end. The poverty that privileged people spend money to alleviate is poverty that they like to keep at a distance. In other words, when you give money to feel, you know, the, the sort of feel good, like I'm going to give money to the poor and to the, to the orphans and, and to the hungry. And so I give part, you know, and you say those kinds of things, I'm giving money to those to support these causes. The Reverend's sermon is sort of about, and you, t- you know, people like those causes to be causes that are kind of over there. People don't yeah. want to give money to support the folks that are like right next to them because they actually don't want them to be right next to them. Uh, but oh, sure, we'll send money over to that thing over there as long as it's uh, you know appropriately uh, tragically pornographic, and you can really uh, really give the empathy to that terrible situation, the money. And as long as there's a distance there, that's where the comfortability lies. And uh, Hester is a a, a sort of perfect example of the distance that wants to be kept and and in part because she has no distance from any of the people in her life um perhaps this is one thing that is being said by the play literally she's i mean had a sexual encounter with all of these folks about as non-distant as you can get they're not particularly willing to help her in the ways that she needs to be helped yeah. Yeah. He's got some, some killer lines. His, his, yeah, his lines about that and the sort of like hypocrisy of, of a lot of, a lot of that sort of giving also like, like, I feel like the character of, 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 of the Reverend is just like this hypocrisy, uh, lighthouse basically <laughs> he's got those lines yeah. so sort of <laughs> so, sort of on like a, a big level he's like making these statements about these things but also the 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 just the brilliant turn of of just like hit, seeing him basically condemn himself <laughs> to hester before he knows that he's connected to hester of like this this terrible father should like be a part of this child's life surely just go and do that and if you can't do it i have a bunch of people you could get into contact with who will find him and go 
garnish all of his wages. And then as soon as as soon as he finds out that she's talking about him, just immediately how the coin flips. Don't go to welfare. Don't garnish my wages. I'll figure out something. You got to go through me. Just just immediately showing the hypocrisy of 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 his stance. <laughs> um, and yeah, so he's just a, a a beacon for that sort of. Um, uh, prophetic language against against that sort of hypocrisy. There's so many great metaphors and images in this play. I mean, Susan Laurie Parks is a genius at that kind of stuff. One of the, I think, really underrated ones, one of her kids, Bully, comes in several times throughout the play and has to have her fists unclenched because at night, I suppose, she so compulsively balls them up that they get sort of stuck, her hands stuck into fists, and she has to come out for Hester to undo her hands. The The pure white pumps that Hester keeps secret yeah. from her family for like the special occasion. She breaks them out when Chili comes by to propose. Uh, you described the hand of God, the eclipse moment that she sees sort of following her around, these five fingers descending. That's another connection to Machinal, by the way. There's a ton of hand imagery in Machinal uh, that makes its appearance here and in the blood. And in the, 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 the baton too is also really interesting. Uh, you know, I always get to the end of the synopsis and I was like, dang, I forgot to set this up for the synopsis. But that's what reading the play is for. Go read the play. Um, but the, yeah. the, <laughs> the, 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 the baton comes in quite early. Um, I think I think it's trouble. It's either trouble or bully has stolen it and brought it back home, like stolen it from a police officer and brought it back home. And then Hester takes it and kind of wears it on her side for the whole play. So the kind of ominous presence of this policeman stick the whole time is is kind of constantly there and then it pays off with the scene at the end so yeah lots of great imagery lots of great prop work lots of negotiate we'd like to talk about negotiation quite a bit we didn't we're running out of time you can tell you can tell from the pace at which we're now picking up that we're running out of time um but like (laughs) but like negotiation of of props again in this play so so good um the sandwich is the one that comes to my mind of amiga gringa kind of showing up and immediately trying to take uh, and succeeding in taking this like this sandwich that is so much of what life is about right now for Hester and her family. So, so lots of great negotiation and power dynamic around those things too. Yeah, well, every scene in this play is a brilliant negotiation. You said something before we started recording that I thought was so interesting too that these confession monologues uh, of the five uh, adult, I guess, uh, the five people who are not Hester's children, the doctor, the reverend, Chili, Welfare, and Amiga Gringa, that they are, in some ways, they're the the kind of structural signposts of the play or the heart of the play, although Hester is, of course, too. And and that, that for, for this play, they are, um, they're weird because they, they don't really advance the plot and and that's not you know not hugely what Susan Laurie Parks does as a plot as a postmodern dramatist, but in some ways the play would be intact uh, 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 narratively without them. But they do feel like hugely driving factors as you learn like the the community the community's judgment of Hester is one of the central images of the play. It starts and ends. Those are the choreo poems. Judgment of Hester for her children and the amount of sex that her children represent. 
Um, the doctor says your kids are five strikes against you, for example. And yet, in these confessions throughout the play, and they're, they're, they're marked in the script as confessions, and a confession is a confession of wrongdoing, right? Yeah. It's not a confession of, I did a great thing. The word confession implies wrongdoing. And so each one of them, you learn like, oh, you know what? Maybe all that judgment about all of her bad choices, you learn along the way, well... That's not quite, that's not quite right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once again, the culpability slash hypocrisy of these people that, you know, at least maybe, maybe like who who in that judgment scene are the same people, at least the same actors are the ones saying those lines. So yeah, it's the, it is this kind of like peel back the layers because I agree, like you could roll through the plot and they're like the A plot is still intact. Um, but the like backstory of the A plot is so wrapped up in those confessions and it completely like, forces you to do the deconstruction work the kind of pull back the layers see what's underneath the community's censure and and make your own decisions about their level of hypocrisy i think that is probably all the time we've got for today this is a fascinating play there's so much here we didn't barely scratch the surface we never do but we have many more plays to discuss and so alas we leave this one behind it's true, it is time to wrap up the conversation on this particular podcast episode, but we would love to broaden the conversation out to all of you who have tuned in. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at Podcast. And you can find, so if you head to any of those sites and want to chat with us about the script there, those are great ways to do it because that means we can also extend the conversation out to all of you and have you all chatting about it as well. Uh, we also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those platforms. We'd love to keep talking talking about in the blood with you. Absolutely. If you liked this episode or any of our other episodes, there's been many, uh, several hundred at this point. So if you haven't, if this is your first one, go check out some of the others. Yeah. If you like them, send us on to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes stories, scripts, theater, conversations, just about great writing. Send them our way. They can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, all the places that you get podcasts. You can also just like the Facebook page, and every Monday a link to the new episode appears there to just click and play. We're coming at you next week with another conversation, unscripted, of course, about theater's best scripts. Until then, I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. <laughs>